you know, I look back on that now and I think how important is that to have this wingman culture, right? This idea that on your team, whether it's in business or in life and your family, that when you do hard things, that you have the support of other people, you have the support of a team, because I think there's moments where we feel overwhelmed, you know, our heart is racing, the adrenaline is pumping, you know, all those things are happening. And every now and then it's nice to have a wingman, right? That's going to provide that mutual support. That's going to have your back. That's going to help you see the bigger picture. I think it's critical and it makes you feel a lot better that you don't have to go through the hard things alone. I'm your host, Emily Kin. And before we start with today's show, please remember to visit Mindset.Zone. Yes, instead of .com, it's .zone. There you can find all the episodes and other amazing resources, all at Mindset.Zone. Kim K.C. Campbell is a sought-after keynote speaker and a retired Air Force fighter pilot. During her 24 years of service, she has flown 1,800 hours in the A-10 war hog, including more than 100 combat missions protecting troops in both Iraq and Afghanistan. Kim holds several leadership positions, such as flight lead, Squadron Commander, Operation Group Commander, Air Force Senior Fellow at the Atlantic Council, and Military Assistant to the Under Secretary of Defense for Policy in the Office of the Secretary of Defense. And she was most recently the Director of the Center for Character and Leadership Development at the United States Air Force Academy. It is my great honor to have the opportunity to interview her here today. Kim, welcome to the Mindset Zone. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm very curious to ask you this question because uh, I'm wondering, when did you decide to become a, a fighter pilot? It's kind of fun looking back to answer that question because my decision came really early um, for me. I decided in fifth grade, um, this was 1986, that I wanted to be a fighter pilot. Um, how I came to that decision is a little bit interesting as well, because in 1986, um, in fifth grade, I was watching the Challenger launch. And, you know, I, as I watched and kind of the disaster that happened afterwards, I realized that those astronauts died doing something that they believed in, you know, something that was so important that they were willing to risk their life and to give their life. And there's something that just connected me with that. Um, and then there was also this thrill of flight and this desire to, you know, go out there and do something different. And so after talking with my parents in the fifth grade, I decided that was the path that I wanted to take. I wanted to become an astronaut. I figured the way that I would get there would be to be a fighter pilot and I was going to go to the Air Force Academy to make it happen. So <laughs> in fifth grade, I set my path, I set my purpose, and I was committed to it. And you have all planned. Love, love, love that. And at the same time, <laughs> when you're saying fifth grade, I was. Uh, there are some interesting experiments done with kids that is asking in a classroom, like to, okay, draw 
um, the, a drawing of a brain surgeon draw a drawing of a leader in a big company or a pilot of a fighter jet. And what happens in the classes when they do these kind of things? Most of the time they draw a man as the, uh, the that uh, that professions right because of right. the stereotypes. So I'm wondering what was the because uh, uh, at the time there was not possible still for women to be fighter pilots, correct? Right, and I didn't know that. Mm. I mean, I my parents didn't tell me when I told them that I was going to go to the Air Force Academy and become a fighter pilot. I think they both one they weren't certain that they weren't certain that that was something that I was going to follow through on. It was just, you know, because it was so different for me and everything that I had been doing and um they never told me that it was something that I couldn't do. They just told me to work hard and go after it. So, I give a lot of credit to them. Um, you know, I I'm not sure what I would have thought if someone had said, "Well, women can't do that." I did find out though later in um high school when I was preparing for a debate about women in combat, that women actually couldn't be fighter pilots. And that was a huge shock to me. Um, but again, I was surrounded with people that were like, look, if you want this, then go after it and work hard. Um, and then shortly thereafter, uh, the rules were changed. And so by the time I got to the Air Force Academy, women were allowed to be fighter pilots. Yeah. But even like that, you were, how many, uh, when you became a fighter pilot, how many women were there? When I started pilot training, so this was 1999, um, there were only 33 female fighter pilots in the entire Air Force out of about 3,000 wow. total fighter pilots. So the numbers wow. were very small. Yeah. Wow. So kudos to you. That shows that sometimes the innocence of a kid of not knowing is so much of a blessing because right. <laughs> is, there is no... Uh, no limitations to what's possible in their imagination. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just was like, well, this is a goal. I'm going to set it. And uh, and then my parents realized how serious I was about it, and they really supported me in that effort. Um, so I'm I'm thankful that I had, you know, mentors and people around me that supported me in something that was going to be a challenging journey. Yep, and uh, and really allow you to explore possibilities in a big way. And how sometimes uh, uh, you have the group of support there, the people around you supporting you in your dream, and you allow yourself to dream that way and making it happen. So it's fascinating. Yeah. And then even if you run into a position or a time where you don't have support, that maybe people aren't as supportive. Um, and I face that here and there. It almost made me want to go out and prove it more, right? Oh. Like if someone said no, it made me want to work harder and prove to them that I could do it. So when did you graduate or whatever is the appropriate name <laughs> in the Air Force? Um, I finished pilot training. We graduated from pilot training in um, 2000 and started my training to be an A-10 pilot, which is a close air support airplane, which means that when they're, when the guys on the ground, when the troops on the ground need support, we come in to help them out. And I started flying the A-10 in 2001. <laughs> so also very, how do you say, um, a year that many things change here in the United States, 2001. Yes. I mean, I think prior to that time, I think 
things were draft- drastically different. And um, on September 11th, 2001, I think it changed, obviously, for many reasons. Um, for me as a pilot, for me as an Air Force officer, I knew that my path would change dramatically. And it did because about um, as soon as I finished with my A-10 training, a few months later, I found myself deployed to combat. Um, and so right away, all that training, all the experience, all the education, everything that had gone into it was being put to the test. And how old were you at the time? Oh, gosh, that's math. I was in my <laughs> early 20s. How's that? <laughs> okay. I, I can. So you were a young adult. You had then yes. all the training. You had achieved your goal. You're okay. You were in the uh, you were uh, like uh, getting the wings. You were uh, flying these uh, incredible machines and uh, all the 9-11, all the situations that came out after that. And you are deployed to a war zone. Yes. And yeah. then something, how do you say, you were there for a couple of years doing uh, your your job. And then in 2003, something happened that you made the national news. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So I deployed in um, 2002 for Afghanistan and then turned around in 2003 and went to Iraq. And in 2003, we were deployed to support Operation Iraqi Freedom Again, our mission, our primary mission was to support troops on the ground. So as our troops move forward, we flew overhead to provide them support. And in April of 2003, our troops reached downtown Baghdad and the fighting became very intense. And um, we got a lot of calls for fire, meaning they needed our help. They were taking fire and we could go in uh, to help take out the enemy. And so on April 7th, 2003, I was flying one of those missions And while supporting our ground troops, my airplane was hit with a surface-to-air missile. I'll tell you, it was probably one of the most terrifying moments of my life. I don't know if that that word even describes it. I mean, it's just one of those things that you, you know, I never could have imagined myself being in that situation. But in that moment over Baghdad, when my airplane was hit with a missile, the missile hit and the airplane became uncontrollable. It dumped over towards the ground. And I just remember seeing the ground getting closer And, you know, there's not, there's nobody else in the airplane that's going to help me. It's all me. And so I just remember kind of going into almost reaction mode where I relied on my training and quickly analyzed the situation to figure out what had happened, was able to get the aircraft in our backup emergency system um, and slowly fly away from the ground and away from Baghdad. And um, it was just one of those moments of being one incredibly thankful that, you know, flying such an impressive airplane that it could take that hit and still keep flying. But also kind of that realization of all that training, all that hard work, everything that I had put into that, you know, in that moment uh, was worth it, you know, because I was prepared to face this intense moment under pressure. And by what you can remember of that, that there was, or they say, when when, I I cannot imagine the quantity of thoughts or not thoughts that can happen in a situation like that, because it's like, oh, I'm still here. But oh, yeah. what now? What kind of, do you remember your thought process there? I do. I mean, I, I think, I feel like time slowed down. Um, and I know I've heard other people talk about that in like a car accident or something similar where time's passing fairly quickly. But I remember thinking through, one, I, I didn't want to crash. I didn't want to die. But also I didn't want to eject because ejecting meant that I would be getting out of the airplane and riding a parachute down into central Baghdad where we had just been engaging with the enemy. And so 
that wasn't something that I looked um, at positively. Uh, and so it was just kind of this, it was almost just a, a choice, I suppose, of like, I'm going to focus on how to get out of this. I'm going to focus mm -hmm. on how to survive. I'm not going to think about those bad things, even though they went through my mind. I took the time to really think through, okay, how do I survive? How do, in this moment, what actions can I take that will help me? Um, and so I went back to some of the things we learned very early in training of just trying to get the airplane under control, analyzing the problem, and then taking the best, you know, making the best decision I could with the information that I had, and then taking action. Yeah, and you had the radio, so you were in communication with uh, with Ombay, so to speak, you were communicating, so... Uh, uh, the radio communication was on, correct? Yes. I Thankfully, you know, we don't fly alone. We fly with a wingman. And my wingman that day was absolutely critical. So in that moment when I had been hit, um, I keyed the radio. I, so I transmitted over the radio to tell him that I had been hit. And immediately he started providing me that guidance and direction that I needed. Um, you know, he was talking to me about where to move my airplane, what to do in the airplane, because he was concerned about the situation. He was concerned that if I had to eject, he wanted me to get over to the friendly territory or at least yeah. where our friendlies were. And so it's that kind of mutual support um, that I think is so critical and very much part of our culture as fighter pilots is having the support of a wingman and backing each other up and having each other's back. And interesting enough, I see a parallel between um, this and your initial dream and support of your family. When you decide to become a fighter pilot, you have the drive, you are the, you are the one doing the work, but you have the support of your family. And when this accident happened in uh, 2003, yeah, you were the one uh, uh, on the plane, but you had a support team behind you too. Yeah, a huge team that was there to provide me support, you know, if I had to eject, there was a team that was going to come get me. You know, when I came in to land the airplane, there was a team waiting for me. We call them the crash recovery team, which isn't a great description, but you know, they were there. All these people were there to support me. And I, you know, I look back on that now and I think how important is that to have this wingman culture, right? This idea that on your team, whether it's in business or in life and your family, that when you do hard things that you have the support of other people, you have the support of a team, because I think there's moments where, you know, we feel overwhelmed, you know, our heart is racing, the adrenaline is pumping, you know, all those things are happening. And every now and then it's nice to have a wingman, right? That's going to provide that mutual support. That's going to be that, that's going to have your back. That's going to help you see the bigger picture. Um, I just think, I think it's critical and it makes you feel a lot better that you don't have to go through the hard things alone. Yeah, and how um, how because after that you you went back to your missions and all of that, mm -hmm. but uh, with time you evolve to to train other people to have uh, loads of leadership positions and now uh, helping companies and organizations really learn about that uh, what you call the fighter pilot mindset yes. to have better teams so how how that tell us a little bit about that evolution yeah and it's taken time don't get me wrong a lot of these things it's not like i um, had these um, realizations over baghdad but i think that mission was such a defining moment in my life in terms of the lessons that it taught me about being a follower being a leader how to work together as a team and so I've over time taken those lessons. And I think, you know, 
we call it a fighter pilot mindset. I think it's similar to mindsets that you'll see on elite teams, um, whether they're Olympians or special forces or high performing business teams. Um, and to me, that fighter pilot mindset is this desire to be the best at what we do and to work really hard at it. Um, it's knowing that you will make mistakes, you will fail, but we hold each other accountable and we learn from those mistakes. Uh, it's, a, it's a confidence in being able to overcome adversity to solve complex problems. And it is a mindset that tells you that every individual, their contributions is what helps make the team perform well. Um, and so over time, I've seen that, whether it's um, leading a two ship of A-10s over Afghanistan or Iraq, or to a point where I'm leading a team of more than a thousand people, I think those same things apply. Um, and so it's been really interesting to see it from that perspective as well. So tell me a little bit more about that. So I, um, I got the opportunity to lead uh, a team um, of airmen, military and civilian personnel. And, you know, I think a lot of times we go into leadership positions thinking we have to be perfect, right? Mm -hmm. Thinking we have to have all the answers. I think the truth is that's not really what our team wants from us. Um, I think it's all about knowing that you don't have to have all the answers. It's being humble. It's being vulnerable to learn from your team and figure out the ideas that they have. It's knowing that when you make mistakes as a leader, or even when your team makes mistakes, instead of either just moving past it and not paying attention to it, or maybe being overly critical, um, you actually take the time and sit down and go through a debrief and think about, you know, what, what was the root cause of that mistake? What could we learn from it? And then most importantly, what will we do differently the next time? And then being vulnerable to share those lessons with other people. Um, that was, that for me was absolutely critical in going into those leadership roles, knowing that I didn't have to have all the answers, that I could rely on my team, that quite often the best decisions came from the team, from various levels of the team. And then when we made decisions, when we took action, if there was a mistake or a failure, knowing that we we were going to learn from it and we were going to do it differently the next time. We were going to share those lessons learned with everybody with the whole goal of making the team better. Yeah. That I think when we lift others, we can elevate the performance of our team. And, and you applying what you learn from being in, in, in your, um, as a, a fighter pilot, yes. you are applying as a leader. And at the same time, I see a very curious thing that I'm wondering what you think about this, because in, in 2003, this was like 19 years ago. Yeah. Uh, what happened is like, I think probably afterwards for a long time, people, oh, that you were so brave, so courageous. I, I, I presume that many people will, with different words, tell you that uh, you managed to deal with the situation and they were in awe for it is that big acts of courage that we are uh, we admire uh, and at the same time i'm wondering when you became a leader and you had the learning curve to become a good uh, improve as a leader and to take the risk of not knowing it all and asking and uh, learning and being vulnerable is a different kind of courage. It's a, yeah. uh, it's a small act of courage that usually are not so socially recognized. But I would love that you speak about, uh, about that, that small acts of courage. Yeah, I think it's uh, so important. I mean, I, I look back on that moment in time and, 
you know, the truth is I was terrified, right? I was really scared in that moment. I didn't know it at the time because I was so focused on what I was doing. But I think what I have taken from that, and it has taken me years really to come to this realization, is is it's not so much the fear that matters in those moments. It's what you do in those moments, right? It's not the it's not the fear that matters. It's what you do when you are scared that matters. And yes, that can be true in big moments, flying a fighter jet, you know, over Baghdad, but can also be true in small moments. And I've felt that as a leader where it does take courage to like admit you don't have the answer. It does make me a little nervous, right? To show a different side of me, to show a more human side of me, to be vulnerable in front of my team. I think that takes courage. I think that's a hard thing to do. And I think sometimes we um, don't give ourselves the credit for that. That is, Those are small acts of courage every day to um, learn from your team, to walk around and get to know them, to find out what they value, but also find out where their pain points and pressure points are. You know, those, those things take courage on the part of a leader, but also on the part of a team member to be vulnerable and share those things and give the feedback um, that leaders need to hear. So I don't think it has to be big, brave, life-changing moves. It's small things that you do in your everyday life um, that are small acts of courage. Yeah, and I'm fascinating about that small act of courage. And I interview another person here for the Mindset Zone podcast. Her name is C.B. Bowman, and she works in organizations and is a lot about that small act of courage. And I find this fascinating because, yes, we have this admiration about the big acts of courage and do so, is what you say. And at the same time, I think the ones that change our life more in the day-to-day is that... And, I, I think we should recognize more the amount of courage that sometimes, for instance, in organization for somebody to speak out is so important. Yeah. Uh, and if the culture is not there, because I think I was listening to some of your interviews and you speak that is part of the culture in, in the debrief sessions, or they say, any, independent of the rank, people are welcome to to contribute to the debrief, what went well, what went wrong yes. correctly. And I think sometimes that is not as clear, that rules of the game is not so clear in organizations. What are your thoughts about that? I think a debrief, um, you can call it a huddle, you can call it just about anything, but taking the time to look back at a situation or a decision, that debrief is so important in any organization. The key is that you have to have an environment of trust, right? Where people are, that they're going to feel comfortable to provide feedback without feeling blame or shame. Um, But that debrief allows you to fail forward, right? It allows you to learn from your mistakes. And I think leaders have a responsibility to, to create that culture and create that environment. Because when you spend the time to debrief, you ensure that you're not so rigid that you can't change your behavior or way of thinking, you know, in this ever-changing, complex, and dynamic environment that we live in, it allows you to adapt. It allows you to overcome. Um, but you have to have that culture established first, that it is okay to make mistakes. It is okay to fail. Uh, it's about what you do in those moments afterwards that matters the most. And how do you go about in creating that culture? I think it all starts with the leader. I think the leader has to admit their own mistakes and admit their own failures and really set the example. You know, we often see that when someone makes a mistake, you know, 
a lot of times an individual gets blamed. You know, it's just the easy answer. But why? Maybe there's something more to it. Maybe the communication wasn't there. You know, what was the root cause of that mistake? Was it really the individual? Or maybe it was the communication. Maybe it was the information passed. Maybe there's other things going on that we're not aware of. Until we take the time to really drill down and figure out that root cause, um, we're missing the bigger picture. And so we find the root cause, we pull some lessons learned, and then we figure out what we're going to do differently the next time. And that that takes a leader to show the team that that is the process, You know that we're not going to just blame people without really drilling into what was the root cause. Um, I think it, it starts with the leader. It starts with setting the example. And creating that that culture and permission to that. And I think is your story is so valuable and so important because we have, a, like myself, I've never been in the military. And the, so we have the, the image that comes from the TV and the movies. Of course. <laughs> uh, and it's not, uh, it's incredible now that I'm more in the leadership world. That there's so many amazing lessons that come from uh, uh, leadership models that come from the military and for what is learning the battlefield and the high stress situations and high stakes situations um, and how in, because leadership is really life and death in that situations and this, uh, um, and I, I think um, realizing the the culture that uh, of in many ways, okay, there is a very clear hierarchy, and at the same time, there is like an openness in some contexts for listening to everybody. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, yes, in the military and during wartime especially, um, it's life or death situations. Mm -hmm. But I think in business and in life, it's taking care of people's livelihoods. And so there is a lot on the line for leaders. And I think it is all about creating a culture where people feel valued, where they understand the role that they play and how their contributions contribute to the rest of the team. You know, where where do they play and make the bigger picture for the team? I think all of those things are incredibly important, both in the military and out. And one of the things that you do nowadays is you are a keynote, so you go to organizations uh, and speak about this, correct? Yes, um, and I'm I'm really enjoying it because it gives me such an opportunity to connect with people and learn from them, but to see how much of this relates to whether it's a construction organization or a financial organization. I mean, teamwork and leadership and followership and mindset matters in all of those organizations. Absolutely. So tell us about how, so you go speak, do you also do training or is more the speaking that you do? Uh, I do keynote speaking and then I also do some executive coaching as well. Um, I work for a team called Victory Strategies um, and it's a team of elite performers. There are Fortune 500 executives, there are uh, Olympians and special operators and fighter pilots. Um, and it's been a tremendous experience to be able to learn from each other. Uh, but we do leadership assessment and development. Wonderful. And uh, can you tell us uh, like a, a story of something that you saw it like unfold uh, that even you were surprised how they learn from what you are trying to coach there? and apply in a way that was transformational? Yeah, I mean, I um, one, of the, one of the great opportunities that I got recently was to speak at a national sales and marketing meeting. 
And I talked a lot about the importance of um, taking action in the face of fear and being able to connect with people on a human level, um, because I think that requires courage in many cases. And one of the things that I shared was a a small story of um, my three-year-old son during a change of command ceremony, which is a very big formal military event. And he decided to come sit up on my lap during the ceremony, which for me, I was terrified, right? Like I was terrified of what my team was thinking about me because at the time I had this mindset that I had to be perfect, right? That I wanted to be this, you know, leader that had all the answers that, you know, could make decisions and be decisive. And, and that the truth is that's really not what my team wanted, but my, you know, so as my son came up on stage and sat in my lap and I was so worried about what my team was thinking, I I also had this realization that, you know what, like, I'm not perfect. I don't have all the answers. Clearly, I can't even control my three-year-old son all the time. So, um, but it was this, you know, sharing the story of being human, right? And showing that human side of leadership, having the courage to show the human side of leadership, to be able to connect with your team. And especially now in this day and age with everything that's happened with the pandemic, I think we're seeing more of that. If there's anything good that comes out of the pandemic, it's people are showing and opening up a little bit about themselves. And after that, after that keynote where I shared that story, um, the number of people that I had come up to me to share their own stories and to tell me that I gave them permission to to show that human side, right? To to have the courage to be a little bit vulnerable and show that side and to really connect with people. That was really important. That was just, it was reassuring and refreshing to hear that, you know, we can all have small acts of courage and we need to give ourselves some credit for the, the small things that we do uh, that do take courage. Wow. So, so true. And then, um... And I can understand because seeing is difficult if you didn't dream to be a fighter pilot to, oh, she's maybe to create that distance. But, oh, I'm a mom. I know what is to have a three-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> and I know the challenges. So it makes you more relatable. Makes yes. it so amazing. Yeah. So where people can learn more about you if they want to bring you to, to an event or to executive coaching, where they can go to learn more about you? Yes, absolutely. Um, they can reach out to me on LinkedIn. It's Kim KC Campbell uh, on LinkedIn. Uh, Twitter is KC Hog987. That's H-A-W-G. Uh, 987. And then also my website, which is kim-kc-campbell.com. Those would be the the easiest and quickest ways to reach out to me. And I absolutely love if people would would reach out. And then I also want to share some news. I've got a book coming out uh, with a group of uh, five authors, and it is called Aiming Higher. And it is our journeys uh, through military aviation leadership. So there are stories that and experiences that we've each had on our journeys, um, but they are journeys that I think will connect with people both inside and outside of the military. Um, And uh, it's been a really powerful journey for me to be on with these other authors to learn so much from them. So I'm really excited. And that comes out on May 17th. May 17th. So maybe we have to have you back 
That would be great. About <laughs> these. Maybe invite some of the other co-authors. It yes. will be a fun discussion to have Absolutely. here. Uh, wonderful. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening and remember to visit mindset.zone. Yes, instead of .com, it's .zone. There you can find all the episodes and other amazing resources, all at mindset.zone. As always, I'm so grateful you are here. Expand what's possible. For you, for the ones around you, for the world.